In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Huzzah. Huzzah. I like that you say huzzah. I don't I know why that? it's my my exclamation of choice. I really like it. <laughs> I think because I say it's like old timey, but I say it sarcastically. <laughs> Is it old timey? I guess it is. I mean, I feel I think Huzzah is like medieval. <laughs> okay, okay. Like they're all in a big beer hall, you know, waving their tankards in the air, saying Huzzah. I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm picturing like the scene from Tangled. I don't even know if you've seen that movie, but I've seen parts of it. All in the pub, saying "I have a dream." That works. Or the huzzah. scene from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, with Gaston. Gaston. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Rick from the Headlines, <laughs> where you get all onomatopoeia and mm-hmm. exclamations mm-hmm. explained. Exclamations, explanations. That's all we offer. That's it. What is new? Real, uh, our dog is sick. Neville is not feeling well. Ugh, not any better. What's going on with him? No, I mean, not really. Mm. Yeah, something was going on. So we took him to the doctor. It was not... The long story short of it is it wasn't a great experience. Our vet wasn't the one that was there. I I did mm. not like the bedside manner of the other vet whatsoever mm. because mm-hmm. I don't have a clear understanding of what happened. I yeah. still don't have a clear understanding of like what is wrong with him. And it was very expensive. It was extremely expensive. Ugh. And it just feels like, for what? Because I still don't know what's going on. So, you know, the... The physical signs are looking good, but we still don't know what's going on, and we still don't know if we're going to need to do something else. Else, yeah. You know? And if we are, I don't... Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye, world. (laughs) Well, hopefully what they gave him works, and it just, like, clears up. Yeah, I hope so. We're dealing with it, and we're hopefully on the mend, but TBD. buddy. How about you? What's going on in your world over there? (laughs) Well, speaking of dogs, Chess got spayed, and she's not being sedentary like she should be even though i am giving her the maximum sedatives that they told me to give her (laughs) uh so i'm i wish i had a fraction of her energy because i've been up with her since 5 a.m oh god i don't envy you no i have a a random thing oh i have a random couple of things too do you, you want to do, like, you can do one, I'll do one, then yeah, you can do one? Yeah, that's fun. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, here's my Great. very silly random thing. Last week in the episode, when you were watching the the opening credits, you had taken yes. an underwater basket weaving class. I had. And I just thought of it after the episode. Uh-huh. If we wanted to open an Etsy shop for that underwater basket weaving class for the creations you might make (laughs) and want to theme it towards our podcast, Mm -hmm. we can call it Basket Cases. Well, folks, it's been nice talking with you for two seasons, but I'm going to have to leave the pod now. (laughs) Wouldn't that be so clever? Because we got baskets for obvious reasons. Then you got cases because we cover cases and then basket cases because... Often the suspects turn out to be basket cases. I That's would also like to. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to point out, uh, or, or rather, share that the first time I ever heard the phrase "underwater basket weaving," the picture that appeared in my head was people in scuba suits, fully submerged beneath the water, weaving baskets. That is not what comes to my mind. I'm picturing <laughs> like hippies in yeah. the water waist deep like <laughs> weaving baskets in like they're either hippies or they're in a commune i guess i just didn't <laughs> have enough images of like how baskets were actually woven in my head as a child the first time somebody said underwater basket weaving yeah i don't picture scuba suits and the reason i have such a distinct memory of that is because in choir in high school when people weren't uh paying attention the teacher would yell at us and he would say things like, if you want to waste your time, go sign up for a class like underwater basket weaving or underwater BB stacking. <laughs> Our choir teacher would yell things like, stop Philly farting around. <laughs> and one time, and her other favorite was, gag me with a spoon. Like she was pulled right out of the 80s. Like, <laughs> oh, wow. 
Oh, Miss Arella. I loved her, though. I absolutely loved her. She was so kooky, but loved her. Miss Arella sounds like a Disney villain. It doesn't... It's, <laughs> no. Or Cinderella. It's like, like Cinderella's stepsister. Mozzarella. <laughs> My random thing is Miles and I recently rewatched all of Pose so that we could start watching the new season and kind of be, you know, fresh on everything. Mm-hmm. And on the most recent episode... There is a crossover of somebody that we mentioned in a recent Law and Order episode, and the woman who I recognized from Charmed, Michelle Hurd, oh. was on an episode of Pose. No way. Way. That was the girl from our um our bonus episode. The in the first season of Law and Order. SPU, you sh- right? You're absolutely correct. So if you did not recognize what I was just talking about, you should sign up for our Patreon. And what else do I oh I have one more thing. Okay, great. So in the last episode, I had done the Roy Radin case, yes. and I mentioned that there was a possible conspiracy or link to him being related to the Son of Sam and the and or the Zodiac. Killer. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure what the connection was because I'd only seen half the series. Okay, and now I finished it. Mm-hmm. I still I, I would recommend it. Um, I would this do a soft recommendation. Sons of Sam. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's really great information, and I think it's just, I don't think it's just presented very well. It's not as, okay. It's not in, presented in a compelling way, but the story mm. is very compelling. And yeah. they sort of, like, go through, in the third episode, the Roy Rating connection, the guy who was tracking down the son of, the theory that the son of Sam was a multiple killer, multiple killers, he found a document that had suggested that Roy Raiden might have been killed by one of the sons of Sam because his initials were on the document and the time period sort of matched up. And it was a big part of his theory that Roy Raiden was part of it. And Mm. it ended up getting discounted, obviously, because we know who killed Roy Raiden. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So they were going through it chronologically. And then, you know, in the fourth episode, they're like, oh, but it it was thrown out. So there was a connection. I just wanted to point out that it ended up not being important, but that's what it was, since I didn't talk about it last week. And I also told you I couldn't find out what happened to the four people that went to jail last week. Oh, yeah. I still had a really hard time finding, like, exacts for right now, but the last record I could find of each of the four people that were put in jail for the killing of Roy Raiden is that they're all still in jail. Okay. And that Lainey, she was, like, the main girl. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a petition to try to get her released that you can sign oh. online, and it's got like I don't know halfway to Wh- its goal. Last time, I why checked. would you be signing that petition? I don't know because I read the whole page. It's kind of like set up like a GoFundMe <laughs> text and stuff, and this there's is... no mention of what she actually did. It's just talking about how great she's been in prison. Uh, yeah. So it, it, this is the woman who was arrested for killing Roy Raiden mm-hmm. under the pretense. Of the uh, of testifying to the other murder that she had committed, that she had been suspected of the one that was yeah. of her husband at the time, right. and she was also a known cocaine dealer to the <laughs> stars, smuggling cocaine in from Colombia. But let's get her out. I mean, I think you know <laughs> people deserve whatever parole process that I guess the system decides is fair, if it's fair, which we know it's not. But no. whatever. But you know, presumably. Go GoFundMe's is not the way to uh, go about having somebody paroled. Yeah, I'm going to put it out there and just say, no. Hard Don't, no. Yeah, hard no. <laughs> <laughs> there is one more thing I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. The weirdest thing happened to me this morning, and I have what? to tell you about it. Okay. So I went outside, you know, I was walking the dogs, and uh-huh. there was a note taped to our mailbox. Okay. It was like the kind that people make by like, cutting out magazine letters, you know, almost like, oh, a, like ransom a ransom note. note. Yeah. Okay. So I was freaked out, but I opened it up and it said, Rift from the Headlines has a Patreon that is live on rippedheadlinespod.com. You're kidding me. I can't even believe it. <laughs> Who would have done such a thing? So if you like what we're doing and you want to know what's the most meaningful to us and beneficial way to support us... And continue... Oh, wait, wait. So if you like what we're doing and you want to know what's the most meaningful to us and beneficial to you, way to support us in continuing to make this show, why don't you become a patron? 
at our $1 level called Dun Dun, you get all the good feels and bragging rights associated with donating to supporting our podcast, supporting our independent podcast, (laughs) stressing (laughs) that part. For the $5 tier called Equally Ridiculous, you not only get a, is it weekly? Shout out or just once? Just once. Okay. You not only get a shout out on the show, but you also get a really adorable sticker designed by N. Yay. And access to our monthly video episodes of Fashion Court, where we give you our verdicts on the 90s-tastic styling choices from the episodes we've recapped. Yes. And at our highest level, which is called These Are Their Stories, you get all of that, as well as being listed on our website as a patron, and access to a monthly bonus episode where we give our usual riff from the headlines treatment to a Law & Order SVU episode, Um, and 10% all of our merch in our newly, newly opened merch store. 10% off. (laughs) That's what I said. You just said 10% of all of our merch. Oh, <laughs> yeah, 10% of all of our merch. You get you get just a little tiny bit of it. 10% off all of our merch. I love so, it. So check it out. Well, I'm so grateful that somebody t- taped that note to your mailbox so that we knew that information. I know. I don't know how to respond. I feel like I'm being watched all day now. <laughs> well, well, should we get into the episode? Yes, let's do it. All right. Well, this is Season 2, Episode 12 of Law & Order, and the episode title is Starstruck. She's so Like the Lady Gaga song. (laughs) Oh, we just went to two different songs. (laughs) Which one did you do? I started singing Lucky by Britney Spears. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Have you heard of it? It's the story of a girl (laughs) named Lucky. I feel like mine actually works, though, because the song is called Starstruck. Yeah, but she's a star. A star. My reference is better. Yeah, but mine's more fun. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the beginning of the episode, and it's daytime. It's daytime. It's been a while. And Matt, I have to tell you, my level of excitement was at, like, 17. If you don't think, I I already know. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the middle of the day, and we're at a park with a bunch of kids playing, and there's, like... a. Seven million leaves flying all over the place. <laughs> yes. They might as well be in a wind tunnel. Um, and there's a woman telling one of them that she's found some sort of, like, thistle plant. So I was like, oh, she must be a teacher, you know? Mm-hmm. But she's a cop, I think. <laughs> in, like, a in like a weird, like, parking attendant car. <clears throat> and uh, shortly afterwards, she's being flirted with by another cop nearby. With pickup lines, like, he's trying to impersonate Mae West or something. He's like, why don't you come over and make me a sandwich? Uh-huh. <laughs> So a few moments later, a dog starts barking and their ears perked up, as well as mine. And I wrote, and must have had a coronary or spit out their drink. (laughs) Because we have our dog discovery. I only had to call one for the season and I've gotten it. it. You got it. And I have to say, you didn't note it on our notes. Oh, I sure did. No, no, no. But I think you got another thing this episode too. Oh, really? But you, when we get to it, I'll talk about it, and you tell me if it's exa- if it fits. Okay, great. But keep that in mind. Yay, I'm excited. Well, I, I feel like you so rarely want to give me extra points. I know. So, so that I thank to, you. I need to re-go over our terms for this one. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the dog has happened upon a woman. She's badly beaten, and her, her belongings, including some cash, are found nearby, which indicates this is not just a burglary. And so the detectives follow her to the hospital, and when they ask the nurse if she can talk to them, the nurse informs them that a coma prevents the speech. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, oh, right, okay. But they do get the ID on her as soap actress Lucy Nevin, because one of the guys on the team says his mom is a huge fan. And she apparently stars in a soap opera called World Without End. And I thought, is that my life? <laughs> Can I tell you, I think one of my favorite, favorite running bits that they do in Schitt's Creek is Moira Rose's, like, <gasps> ridiculous plot lines on Sunrise Bay. I love, oh, we have to watch the last season of Schitt's Creek. There's just a moment where, like, both David and Alexis have been watching it, and David goes, are you trapped inside this crystal for the entire episode? <laughs> just, like, so perfect. <laughs> that reminds me of the soap opera Passions. I don't know if you've ever yes. seen that. I, well, I, okay, so I was going to mention this in my section because mine references soap operas too, but 
I don't understand how you get into a soap opera because they've all been on for a hundred years mm. at this point. And so how would you ever get the entire story? Or do you, is it a genre where you literally just drop in the middle and start from there? Well, I think it has, to, it depends on if the soap opera is struggling or not. How you get okay. in. If it's struggling, they'll bring you in with a brand new whole storyline that'll like rock the whole system. And I it'll see. usually okay. be like supernatural or someone's dying that is right. or someone's coming back to life. That's amnesia. another one I like to do. Amnesia and Amnesia and Coming Back to Life are two of the favorites. Yeah. Um in my sister's soap opera that eventually became our soap opera. Oh. <laughs> little little uh closeted me watching soap operas and that's not a giveaway. Um <laughs> it was Days of Our Lives. Okay. And in that one, in the in the period of time I watched it with her, we had a demon, a devil or demonic possession. Shut up. I love it. Of Marlena. It was raining fire. <laughs> and the reason I remember that is because one of our, this is like such a 90s memory for me. How were you allowed to watch this? When my dad married my sister's mom, uh-huh. she moved in with us. Her family moved in with us. And she was five years older than me. She's my brother's age. Okay. And she basically kind of got to do whatever she wanted if it even if it wasn't the rules of our house, you know? Okay. Because it was kind of like, you're not going to tell me what to do. <laughs> right. Because you and were merging families. Exactly. And I was, uh, I, me and her got along great from the jump. So I just did everything she did. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so I remember Days of Our Lives was the, the show, you know, and it was on during like the Summer Olympics and we had to record Days of, Days of Our Lives uh-huh. late at night because it would show it like at midnight because the uh-huh. Olympics were on. And I remember we were watching the episode, me, my sister, and my brother, and it was the episode where Marlene is possessed by the devil and it's raining fire outside. <laughs> and this is the dial this is the dialogue exactly. And we we reference it to each other all the time. Uh, it's like Jack and Jennifer, I think. Okay. And Jennifer goes to Jack. She runs into the church, of course, and goes, Oh my god, it's raining fire. And he goes, <laughs> I know. I was there. <laughs> Oh, anyway, that's wow. the kind of that's my soap opera experience. I think the only one I really was ever exposed to was General Hospital. Mm-hmm. I think occasionally my grandma would watch that, but my family was never really a soap opera family. Yeah, my sister's family was, and then they they kind of grew out of it. But mm. when we met them, they were all her, her mom, her aunts. They all watched her, her cousin. They'd <laughs> call each other. <laughs> I kind of love that, though. I guess it's kind of like. The Real Housewives, in a way. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. And how about, hello, Eileen. Oh, and well, Lisa of course, Rina. and Rena. Oh, yep. Anyway, let me know. Did you see the print of her jacket? Well, suit, her head-to-toe suit in the premiere. Did you watch the premiere? Of course. That's why I was okay. I was just about to say we have to talk about the premiere, but we're like 22 minutes in, and I feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so we might have to save it. <laughs> okay. For cool story. All right. Tune into Cool Story for the uh, recap of Real Housewives premiere. Yeah, if you want to know what we think of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills premiere, and you know you do, check out our other <laughs> podcast, Cool Story, next week. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Oh, and th- we got a great line right here. A great line I had to write down. When okay. we find out who she is and she stars in World Without End, the guy whose mom is a big fan, Logan uh-huh. says to her, tell your mom she's in for a plot twist. Oh, yeah. That was just charming. <laughs> The opening credits rolled, so I picked an activity that I thought would be appropriate in length for this time period in the meantime. Mm -hmm. So I rolled out some homemade pasta, I baked an entire pan of lasagna, and I fed it to the animated cat Garfield. (laughs) (laughs) And we came back, and Soretta has a really unique theory he's sharing with the team. Have you ever made homemade pasta? I wish. I have a friend, um, friend of the podcast, Gary Hours, is a trained chef, and his oh station was pasta when he worked at like a restaurant in the city. So he is promising to teach me to make pasta. I'm making him make me do it. I want to learn it. all his dishes. Have you made it? I've never, I don't think I ever have. I think I've probably had it at a restaurant, maybe, mm-hmm. but certainly never made it at home. I feel like it's not super hard. It doesn't like look it, hard when you watch it on TV. Right? It's just like flour, water, and eggs sometimes, yeah. right? But then yeah. I also watch those shows with like amateur chefs and watch them struggle to make it and they <laughs> make it for like a living sometimes. And I'm like, maybe huh. it is harder than it looks. 
Oh, there's more pasta in this episode. There's another pasta reference in this episode, by the way, which we're going to get to. Strange. <laughs> but uh, Soretta's unique theory he's sharing with the team is that he thinks she was targeted because she was famous. Wow. What a revolutionary Groundbreaking. concept. <laughs> right? Real police work went into that. But uh, he goes and decides to, you know, talk to people she knew. So he goes and talks to the survivor's doorman, who looks like a low-rent Sergeant Grievy, in my opinion. I thought it was Grievy's mm. actor for a second, and I was like, wow, oh. that's shady. But <laughs> it's not. And all he is able to tell them is that she has an unlisted address, and sometimes people try to find her, but, you know, no one no one would be able to find her off the yellow pages. Right. And her usual routine is that she walks her dog, Roxy, along a path, and it's the same sort of path where she's found off of, and she does it every night at 10 p.m. So they're like, okay, and they go to talk to her assistant. They go to talk to her assistant, <laughs> Nora. Her anesthesiologist. <laughs> they go to talk to her assistant, Nora, and when they do, I thought, oh my god, she looks just like Allison Janney. It oh my god. is Allison Janney. Well, I didn't even have to look at her. I heard her immediately start speaking, and I was like, is that Allison Janney? But then my brain started to tell me it couldn't possibly be Allison Janney, because she's such a star. And she's but, only in, like, one scene of this whole episode. Yeah. It must have been an early role for her, but this was the was. 90s. I looked online, and she's going to be in another episode of Law & Order as a totally different character, like, side character, too, and then that's it weird right oh my i was blown away though that it was allison i love her. oh i love her and yeah. then i looked up like things she was in just to refresh my memory and literally like i was like you have been in like everything and i love you and everything and she's an emmy and academy award winner i have a little bit of a, a like brain malfunction where Sometimes my brain can't remember whether it's Glenn Close or Meryl Streep. Like, in my brain, they get confused sometimes. Oh my and god, wait, with wait. I Allison have one Jan with her, and I wonder if it's the same person. Christine Bransky. Oh, okay. Okay, no. Not for me. Okay. Who is it's it for you? Allison Janney, Joan, uh, Joan Cusack. Oh, I mean, there's similarities there. Right? Yeah. It's There's like a thing. There's a YouTube video <laughs> uh, that uh, where a woman does something where she's like, you've heard of like method acting or whatever, but have you heard of mouth acting? And then she impersonates like <laughs> 30 different actresses from Drew like Barry Drew Barrymore to, have you seen it? <laughs> no, but that's the first mouth actress oh, yeah. I thought of. <laughs> Drew Barrymore, Joan Cusack is one. I, there's a bunch, but it's really funny. You should oh go watch god, it. Oh my god, that sounds great. Remind me of that because I actually want to see that. Okay. Um, all right, so... She lets the detectives know that Lucy, the actress who's in the hospital, that she's a hard worker, it's sad that no one recognizes it, and that she um, usually wears this particular ring and a medal of St. Genesius, who they say is the saint of actors. And um, I looked it up. Do you mm -hmm. want to know what else he's the patron saint of? Uh, pasta. Is it pasta? No. No, not okay. yet. We're getting there, though. <laughs> he's the patron... They're the patron saint of actors, lawyers... Barristers, clowns, comedians, <laughs> converts, dancers, people with epilepsy, musicians, printers, stenographers, and victims of torture. Okay, I have to tell you. I have to That's tell you. That's a lot of range. Said, when you said printers, my brain went to like a an office printer, <laughs> not like people who did printing. And I was like, why do printers need a patron saint? Let me tell you the amount of. Issues people have with printers, they need a patron saint. <laughs> they really do need a patron saint. <laughs> Maybe Genesius can get on it. Oh, God. That's a okay. lot. But, hey, in any event, neither of these items were recovered. And they ask her if, you know, Lucy gets a lot of unusual fan mail. And she shows them three boxes sorted weird, weirder, and weirdest. <laughs> <laughs> so they take the letters back to the station. And once they have it narrowed down to the local ones... With, like, stalker potential, they split up and decide to get statements. But first, Soretta says, quote, First, we get some fettuccine. Then we knock on doors. Eh! Yeah. And we find out this was just a big commercial for Galbani. Also, fettuccine <laughs> would be one of my last noodle choices. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my last noodle choice, but it's definitely not front of mind. I'd it pick fettuccine usually before spaghetti, but oh, it depends sure. on the sauce. Sp both... I don't like pastas that you have to twirl that are messy. Give me like a penne. Give me a ziti. Give me a cavatappi. Is that the bow, the bow tie? I no. Or I the think, curly. I think it's the curly. I like oh, the no, little maybe twist. Maybe that's <laughs> What are we doing? 
Oh my gosh. So <laughs> after the episode broke down into a pasta commercial, they uh, decided to go check out a few of the other leads. One is an extremely grumpy man in a wheelchair. Um, these are the guys that they think might be stalkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is a guy who literally has a comb of Lucy's in a frame with a weird mm-hmm. lacy backdrop and <laughs> a house wallpapered with headshots of her. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. Um, but he's cleared because he has a bus ticket for a soap star convention he had been at, which is found in the trash. Oh, trash discovery. I, I didn't feel notice like that, that counts because he said I might have it. And then he picks up at the trash can. And like digs through it, and uh, Logan finds it. I'm I'm gonna give myself credit for that. I would say that's a, a counts because we Thank said you. it was any sort of evidence, right? Yes, and it's evidence that clears him. So I'm I'm gonna yeah. I give it to you. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so another guy that they go to is named Jesse. He says he was at home uh, by ten. No, he left his girlfriend's house around ten, and. The housekeeper and his father both corroborate this and say that he was home by like 1030. And so they're like, okay, we're striking out. So now that Lucy is out of the coma and recovering, they go back to the hospital and discover that she's so badly beaten that she can barely speak. And this is where we find out that she is, in addition to being badly in really bad shape, she's terrible at charades. And she absolutely does not want to write words on paper because like they ask her like, oh, did you see the guy? And like nodding yes seems like an issue for her. So she like tries to say something and they realize like they don't understand her and she gets frustrated and starts to write like a word and then like tosses the the pad. <laughs> and they're like, you know, OK, so they don't get a lot out of this yet, but they they decide to go follow up with her colleagues And they find out from a Tiffany body double (laughs) that a girl named Sarah (laughs) had been fired recently for stealing Lucy's things. Sarah, when they meet her, who I think looks like a, like, hybrid of Cyndi Lauper and Pat Benatar. (laughs) I think that's even better. Pat Benatar. Or maybe Cyndi Lauper and, like, Aiden Zane. (laughs) I think she might have actually just walked off the set of, um... If you say charms, to heartache, stand. No promises, no demands. What's that song? Pat Love is a battlefield. Love is a battlefield. Literally the next line. <laughs> oh my gosh! So she she reveals that it's true. She had been stealing things from the set, but she had only done it to sell it to a creepy guy who offered her like two hundred bucks for it. So, I like how that was her defense. Okay, fine, I stole things, but I only did it to sell them to a creep. She's like, like I didn't keep them, I sold them to somebody else. I'm not right. interested in her. <laughs> That's what she's concerned uh. about. But they trace the items back through a roundabout way, eventually to a thrift shop. And there's a few pointless scenes that they get there through. They see Macklemore. <laughs> kind of. So uh, the owner, under threat of search warrant, reveals that there's a Tom Foreman who had bought an expensive dress that belonged to Lucy. But when they find Tom, it's a drag performer who's like just getting off off their uh, show. Which I yes. thought it was the daytime, so I thought that was a little weird. I don't think it was yeah. a drag brunch, but... <laughs> Could so, have been a brunch. He, uh, they're coming back from the stage, and a much better representation of a drag perform a man in drag yes. than before yes yeah not the one that we saw who was like also a sex worker maybe right yeah not better makeup too not yeah. much better not but. much better i was gonna say but we're, we're getting a little bit better yeah and i kind of like this character yeah and they tell them like you know uh what of course you suspect me there's a bunch of like back and forth like that but upon a little extra pressure we find out that, yes, the, they bought the dress, but it's for their act, and they, they buy many dresses for their act for, for that, to impersonate people. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, but what about this particular dress? And we find out that they actually sold the dress to a creepy audience member who <laughs> practically begged from, for it and made him nervous about it. So it was like a thousand bucks to take the dress. And we find out that this fan was Jesse, the guy from before whose housekeeper alibied him. Mm-hmm. And they visit Jesse at his job where he's dressing mannequins quite terribly, by the way. Okay. Did you, you never saw a dollhouse, did you? No, not yet. Okay. There's a episode that involves a man with a house full of mannequins and 
It's it's not a it's not a good feeling. <laughs> it, it it wasn't a good feeling at all at all. No, he sticks to his story and his girlfriend. He says you can ask my girlfriend, and they go to visit her at work, which is a crappy clothing store. It looks like kind of like a tacky mm-hmm. clothing store, and the inside of it is lit by green light. <laughs> that that can't be good for business. I know. How would you buy anything? Hello, <laughs> it's like a Spencer gifts. So. Oh. She admits that, you know, yes, he left a little earlier than 10. It was only like 15 minutes, but it was because they had an argument because they have different fandoms, basically. (laughs) She likes Tina Turner and he likes Lucy and not Lucille Ball. So they go back to him and they get him to agree to do a lineup because he discovers that Lucy is going to be the one identifying him and that gets him excited. So they line up a bunch of, you know milk toast white people in a room and they wheel her in to look at them and she's now able to speak but barely and we're able to see more of her now to know that she is another guest star her name is blanche baker and she's been on a lot of things but the most interesting to me is or are two things she was in 16 candles okay where she played Ginny, which i love 16 candles i love all of i those never saw Rat pack movies oh so good and then she's also in a 1990s film adaptation of the handmaid's tale that i didn't know existed oh where she plays off glenn and oh, wow. this version stars natasha richardson and faye dunaway wow right i didn't even know this existed no i had no idea and i wonder I look, if it's any good i wonder if it's, i'm i'm curious i'm i'm intrigued the cover doesn't look great <laughs> okay the cover of the like vhs doesn't look great but okay you know it's star studded yeah i mean it was 1990 right exactly but she does a good, I mean, and this actress did good in this episode, so. Yeah, she wasn't bad. I mean, other than her bad uh, charade skills. <laughs> yes. Okay, I mean, although, yeah, I don't know. Her... I know, she's she was the victim of a violent crime. I understand. <laughs> okay, I get it. <laughs> I was actually just going to say, I am i don't know that I agree that her acting was pretty good in this, because I feel like her, like, weird raspy voice was very like lord voldemort (laughs) it was a little you know what you're right it was a little bit like i'm i'm a menacing (laughs) (laughs) snake-nosed uh wizard (laughs) menacing snake-nosed wizard i think might have to be the title of this episode (laughs) it really might be as soon as you said it that's what i thought of okay so (laughs) she's able to identify him like immediately she says that's the guy who stabbed me and so they take him into custody and his lawyer claims you know he's not of sound mind you never you know that's it and they get their doctor to you know assess the situation with him and it's dr olivet again and she is kind of unable to determine anything conclusively because he's being dodgy Mm mm-hmm in the next scene, as the detectives and the DA's office is trying to see how they're going to like go up against whatever the defense is bringing to them, they're expecting an insanity defense. They don't know how the jury is going to like differentiate between crazy, quote-unquote crazy, and quote-unquote legally crazy or insane. Right. And they're sort of like a lot of chatter about that. And they're interrupted by the news that Lucy has gotten a threatening letter from Jesse. And once they read it and they get the gist of it lucy's very frightened but they're pretty positive that this was just basically done on purpose in a manipulative way to bring it into evidence later to prove the insanity defense Mm -hmm. so a good portion of this order side is like like i was saying strategizing supposing you know what are we gonna do so i i'm not including condensing yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we're going to fast forward to the trial, and on the stand, Lucy gets, I'm sorry, there's people having, like, a pool party outside? Did you hear that? <laughs> no, I didn't. I wonder, I'm going to leave it in, if I can, because it was like, woo! <laughs> I just want you to, I want the, I want the listeners to know how I live. <laughs> what I live with. So, they get Lucy on the stand, and she says, she goes over everything in detail and she everything she remembers she remembers it's him and she tells stone at the end that she'll be lucky if she's even able to walk again after these injuries and then the defense has no questions on the stand after that they get jesse's dad who claims that jesse's been hearing voices in his head since high school and then stone when he gets up there tries to ask him you know let's get some details on that like what did the voices say to him what were the things you were concerned about about him how did they affect him like all of this he just sort of stammers through and has no recollection of any of it 
Right. In fact, no witness the whole time is able to give any recollection of it, including when they get Jesse on the stand. So after everyone testifies, besides Jesse, Lucy is in the DA's chambers with Stone, and she's basically like, what's my best bet? And he says that pleading him out will probably be the safest bet because the jury is going to be unpredictable. And she says, like, what if the jury does sentence him? What's... What are we looking at? <laughs> and he says five to 15 max, but there's no guarantees. And Robinette like expresses like, yeah, really no guarantees. So he's basically telling her expect five. And she says, hmm. Well, she, yeah, like she says, she wants to push forward with the trial regardless. And they're back um, in the courtroom and Jesse's on the stand. And he's giving his version where the voice in his head had told him that if Lucy won't love him, he had to kill her. And he admits to sending the letter, of course, and then Stone has him on the stand and he has him testifying to the fact that he will definitely continue to come after her if given the chance. And he asks him in no uncertain terms over and over again. And he says, absolutely, I'm going to. And he says it's because he has to. So in the next scene, they cut to the jury foreman reading their verdict. And it is guilty of second degree murder. And as he's like walking out of the courtroom, he kind of like mimes a kiss to her. It's like really Ugh. creepy and weird. Like, with, you know, <laughs> like he doesn't purse his lips, but he does everything else, you know? Yeah. You know what it is. And he's, you know, she's unsettled by it, obviously. And while he's found guilty, Stone and Robin are sort of talking afterwards. You know, as usual, we end with their little conversation. And it's about how it's not a total win because as Stone says, quote, he should be in a hospital and we put him in jail. And that's the end of the episode. Well, great job. Thank you. Thank you. Are you ready to hear about the crime? I'm really curious because you had mentioned your deals with soap operas and I really have no clue. Okay, great. So this is the story of Rebecca Schaefer. Oh, that name is really, she's an act, she's an actress, right? A young actress, new actress. Uh, yeah, I'll, t- I will, I will tell you her story. How about <laughs> okay. that? Then I think, <laughs> I think I might know it, but yes, I'll tell you if I okay. know it as you go. <laughs> so she was born in Eugene, Oregon on November 6th, 1967 to her mother, Dana. I'm going to say it's like Dana, but with two N's. Oh, okay. Dana? Yeah, that sounds right. She was a writer and a teacher at Portland Community College and her father, Benson, which is such a great name, was a child psychologist. Okay. Do you, don't you love, like, ima- uh, A, old-timey names are coming back. I have a friend who named her ba- baby Henrietta recently. <laughs> um, and what I love about that is just, like, the idea of, like, picking up a baby and looking at it and going, yes, Benson. I know. I love that. Like, <laughs> yes, uh, Irving. <laughs> yes. Uh, so um, her family was Jewish, and originally Re- uh, Rebecca had envisioned becoming a rabbi while she was in high school. Uh, she was very committed to her faith and was kind of on that trajectory. But during her junior year, she began modeling and appeared in TV commercials, department store catalogs, and some extras in TV movies. Ah, oh, I love department store catalogs from back in the day. That's a time. I warp. was just thinking about that. Like I remember as a kid going to JC's JC Penny and going to an area of the store where they had a catalog and like placing an order for a specific jacket. Oh, I loved the JC Penny catalogs. I would I love that. That's what I would spend my time doing in the stores. Would be going through the catalogs that they'd have like in the home furnishing section. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the ones at home, forget it. I mean, yeah. half of how I found out I was gay was probably these catalogs. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1984, when she was 17 years old, her parents allowed her to move to New York City so that she could pursue her modeling career. So she kind of got bitten by the fame bug and decided to go that route with her life. And uh, she kind of took to it pretty well. Like her mom describes how Rebecca, like really quickly, like on her first day, really demonstrated that she could handle herself in the city because she said that a a man tried to grope her and she turned around and punched him right in the face. And she, she said she had no fears. She had spunk. She had a lot of spunk. So in New York, she enrolled at the Professional Children's School, which is a college preparatory school for working or aspiring child actors, dancers, and musicians. And I was like, I wonder who graduated from that, because I wanted to have a sense of like how prestigious that was, Mm -hmm. or maybe how good it was. And when I got to the list of like notable people, I was like, I don't recognize anybody on this Mm -hmm. list. And then I realized it was themed by 
like art type and I was reading a list of dancers and oh. I was like, oh, okay. So then when I got to musicians, it was like Vanessa Carlton, Yo-Yo Mob, Buddy Rich. Actors were Holly Marie Combs, the Cohen, the Culkin brothers, Melissa Joan Hart, oh, Uma I Thurman. Love all of these people. Yeah. So a lot of really, really big names. So in 1984, as she was living in New York, going to school, she landed a role in a soap opera named One Life to Live, which oh. you may have heard of because it's a pretty big one. Yes. She had a character named Annie Barnes, who was a role that lasted for about six months. Mm, okay. And soap operas are daily, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, every week. Okay. So that's not bad. Yeah, no, that's a lot of that's a long time. story. That's arc. a lot of work. Yeah, she also landed a short-term role on Guiding Light. So Rebecca wanted to continue modeling as well, but unfortunately, she was considered too short for high fashion modeling because she was only five foot seven. So she was two inches under the industry standard for fashion models. Janice Dickinson echoing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> And she, for a while, even traveled to Japan to try to get modeling jobs there. Um, Unclear on why or what was different about the market, but uh, she also had difficulty there. And so she actually came back to New York and decided to kind of forego modeling and decide to pursue pursue acting at this point. Mm -hmm. Sounds wise. Yeah. And even though he's a disgusting creep, she (laughs) got a, a pretty... She was pretty excited to get a role in Woody Allen's movie, Mm. um, Radio Days. Although, unfortunately, after editing, her character was edited out of the film. Oh, lame. Isn't that sad? That's terrible. I feel like there's something, like, didn't Darth Vader, the the actor who actually played Darth Vader, wasn't told that his voice was going to be dubbed over until, like, he found out in the movie theater? Oh, my God. I'm pretty sure that I remember that accurately. Okay. So she started to get some attention. She landed a cover of Seventeen magazine and started to get attention from some producers. And at the time, another actress who was pretty big at the time named Pam Dauber, she was on Mork and Mindy. Oh, Uh, I know exactly what that is. Yeah. She was cast in the lead role for a new sitcom called My Sister Sam. The story focused on a young woman named Patty, who is a teenager who moves to San Francisco to live with her older sister, Sam, after the death of their parents. Mm. And so Pam Dauber was cast in the role of Sam, the older sister, and Rebecca was cast in the role of her younger sister, Patty. Okay, yep. This is the one I'm thinking So this of. was a pretty big break for her, because she got a starring role on, like, a nationwide sitcom. So she was pretty excited about this, and... A number of the articles talk about uh, Rebecca's relationship with Pam Dauber and how they had this really great friendship and Dauber treated her like an older sister and even was like, you can move in with me for a few months if you need to. So uh, just like a really great time in her life. Uh, The show was a huge success in its first season, ranked in the top 25 shows. Unfortunately, its second season didn't see the same success and was canceled halfway through due to failing ratings. So Uh, That was in 1988. And it was a result of this fame from my sister Sam that she came into contact with a man named Robert John Bardo. And so now I will kind of shift to give you a little bit of his story. So uh, Robert John Bardo, John Bardo, was born January 2nd, 1970, and was the youngest of seven children to what sounds like a pretty tumultuous family, although I was unable to get a lot of, like, different, distinct information about his past. Like, the articles all kind of regurgitated the same talking Uh points, which, Uh. unfortunately, I'm going about to do. (laughs) So uh, his father was a non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Air Force, and their family moved around pretty frequently, uh, but they ultimately settled in Tucson, Arizona. Bardo did not have what sounds like a great childhood. He apparently was abused by one of his older siblings, and at the age of 13, he declared suicidal ideations, and his family's response was to put him in foster care. Oh, boy. So that didn't necessarily help him. Uh, certainly didn't address the mental health stuff going on. His family had a history of mental illness, and Bardo was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder. 
And at 15, his foster family had him institutionalized for a month. Okay. Pretty shortly after that, he dropped out of high school and began working as a custodian for Jack in the Box. And it was during this period of time that he developed an obsession with a girl named Samantha Smith, who was a 13-year-old a pretty well-known peace activist. Like, she went to Russia to talk to them about the Cold War, I think. So he was obsessed with her, but she unfortunately died in a plane crash, so he developed a new obsession, and this one focused on Rebecca Schaefer. Hmm, that's the difference. Oh, right. Uh, th- number one, he's 19, and his original obsession was with a 13-year-old. Ooh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And... A, like peace activist, a child peace activist. Now he's going on to 21-year-old Rebecca Schaefer, the soap actress. Mm, okay. Strange. So Bardo started writing Rebecca numerous letters, um, and she kind of perfunctorily replied to one of them, like with a standard like headshot, thanks. like thanks for being a fan, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, unfortunately, that seemed to kind of intensify his perception or of reality that like they were supposed to be together or know each other. I, I need to I want to ask you a question. Yes. Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's not the question. Um you know the song Possession by her? I'm sure I would know it if I heard it, but I can't like produce it in my head right now. So I love that song. But the song is about being like obsessed with somebody. Okay. And it turns out that she used lines that she was getting from like a serious stalker of hers to inspire the lyrics. Oh my, Um, I literally just got chills on my body. Yeah, yeah. It's so, it's such a good song. It's the one that says like, I will hold you down, kiss you so hard. Oh my God, that song? Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Okay. And then the, the crazy part about it even more is the guy who was stalking her tried to sue her to take her to court saying, like, you're using my lines in your song. Oh, my And the gosh. court threw it out, saying it was just another attempt to get close to her. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Crazy, okay. right? Yes. So, um, Bardo's letters primarily talked about his devotion to her and how he was this sensitive, harmless guy. And he eventually traveled to California specifically to see her, and showed up at the the CBS studio set where my sister Sam was filming in an attempt to like get to her on set. And he the first time he tried it, yes, I said the first time he tried it, uh, he brought like roses and a teddy bear. Oh, the second time he brought a knife. <gasps> Oof, okay. He was both times turned away by security. And unfortunately, it doesn't sound like Maybe she knew about this happening, or she didn't wasn't really told that he came with a knife, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really like reported to police. Like, hey, this guy who like was insisting to see her came back a second time holding a knife. But okay, That's so crazy. for a time he returned to Tucson, and what's interesting, I I don't quite understand the psychology of like obsessions, but his obsession shifted to a couple different folks during this time. Like he was focused on Debbie Gibson for a while. He was focused on Tiffany for a while, uh, Madonna for a while. These just sound like my interests growing up. (laughs) Honestly. Electric. Uh, I was like, he's, I mean, (laughs) Debbie Gibson, Tiffany and Madonna, they're great. Hello. But while he was obsessed with Debbie Gibson, Tiffany and Madonna, Rebecca Schaefer landed a role in a movie called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. And Bardo saw it, and it kind of, like, rekindled his obsession with Rebecca. Mm. And in their time filming, my sister Sam, Pam Dauber, who, who was, you know, the the older sister, uh, had really given Schaefer a lot of advice about being famous or, you know, having some amount of fame and and how to handle that. And gave her the advice to never put her actual name or address on her mailbox um, or, like, even have her, like, home address on her driver's license. Unfortunately, Schaefer did not listen to this advice. Bardo was able to contact a private detective agency, and he hired them to obtain Rebecca's home address (sighs) in West Hollywood. Disgusting. Yeah. He then enlisted the help of his brother to get a Ruger handgun. Again, I will name the type of gun. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Mm -hmm. His brother helped him get it because he had told him, oh, I just want it for target practice. 
So, by the way, at this time that his brother was like, sure, let me help you get this handgun, Bardo had been arrested three times on domestic violence charges and disorderly conduct charges, and his family knew he had a history with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So, giving him a gun doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily scream the right choice to me. No, and uh, target practice doesn't sound like a realistic reason either. Yeah, exactly. So... On July 18th, 1989, Bardo boarded a bus from Tucson and for a third time traveled to California. Just before his visit, he had written a letter to his sister with the line, I have an obsession with the unattainable and I have to eliminate something I cannot attain. Upon his arrival to Los Angeles, Bardo went to the neighborhood where Schaefer reportedly lived according to the address information he had gotten from the detective agency. And at first he kind of like wandered around and asked people if Rebecca Schaefer really lived in the neighborhood. Schaefer was at home at the time, and later that day, like an hour and a half afterwards, she was supposed to meet with Francis Ford Coppola because she was up for a role in Godfather 3. And so she was waiting at home for a courier to arrive to give her the script so that she could kind of look it over in preparation for the audition in an hour or two. Okay. So Bardo, when he becomes convinced that he has the right address, at 10.15 a.m., he goes up to her apartment and rings her doorbell and pretends to be a flower delivery man. Minutes before his arrival, Schaefer was on the phone with her fiancé, Brad Silberling, and he was calling to wish her luck on her meeting for The Godfather 3. Bardo told Rebecca that he was a big fan, but was very upset and angry with her because of her role in the film Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, because there was a sex scene in the movie that she was in, and he that just... Enraged him. He accused her of having lost her innocence. He said she was becoming, quote, another Hollywood whore, <sighs> and she needed to be punished. God. She was like, thanks, bye, closes the door in his face, and he leaves and goes to have breakfast at a nearby diner. By the way, if you were having a meal at a diner at 1030 in the morning, name something you might order. Oh, I mean, I've I've done this a lot of times. What would I get at ten thirty in the morning? Yeah, I would get like an omelet or toast. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Maybe I would get like pancakes. Okay. Bacon. Bardo's <laughs> choice was onion rings and cheesecake. Oh. Mm. Which is both independently great. Yes. But together is weird, and also at ten thirty in the morning is weird. Yeah. 10.30 in the morning, it's weird, for sure. I, yeah. I I won't say that I wouldn't have cheesecake at 10.30 in the morning. Uh, oh, I mean, I absolutely would part. eat cheesecake at 10.30 in the <laughs> but morning. But not that combo. Probably not. That's one of my favorite parts about the holidays. Uh, a, I don't really like holiday food, but what I do love is holiday desserts, uh, like pies. Mm-hmm. And I love that the days at following holidays, it's like, oh, there's still apple pie. I'll have that for breakfast. Yes. The best. Oh, That's like the one perk of holiday food to me is is being able to convince myself that cheesecake or a pie is an appropriate breakfast. Yeah, because you just say it's like pastry. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Okay. So he, at the diner, has his onion rings and cheesecake, and about an hour later, he goes back to Schaefer's apartment. This time, he rings the doorbell, and she opens the door, realizes it's him again, not the courier who's supposed to be arriving with the script, and is kind of like, says something to him along the lines of like, you're wasting my time, or, you know, something like that. He pulls out a the gun and shoots her in the chest at point-blank range. According to his later testimony, Schaefer's only words were, why, why, as she fell to the ground. He runs away. She was rushed to a nearby hospital, but was pronounced dead 30 minutes after her arrival. She was only 21 years old. It's the worst. When he murdered her, Bardo also happened to be carrying a red paperback copy of The Catcher in the Rye, which you might recognize as a theme from the person who shot and killed John Lennon. Is that what? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Also, side note. The Catcher in the Rye is one of the worst books of all time. I don't care if you disagree with me. Fight me, internet. It's terrible. He, at the time of her murder, had been stalking her for more than three years. The next day, Tucson Police Chief Peter Ronstadt 
was called to uh, received calls that there was a man running through traffic on Interstate 10. He goes to Interstate 10, and there is Bardo, and the police chief arrests him, and immediately Bardo confesses to the murder. When the police search his bedroom, they discovered his walls were covered with photos of Rebecca, and his diary included a diagram of Rebecca with spots where he planned to shoot her. Oh my god. Yeah. So he was arrested. He was uh, charged with first-degree murder. And the state prosecutor assigned to his case was Marsha Clark, who you <gasps> might recognize as the lead prosecutor on the O.J. Simpson trial. Marsha Clark. By the way, do you think we're going to get an O.J.-inspired episode on uh, Law & Order at some 100%. point? A hundred percent. Okay. A hundred percent. How could they not do that? So. Uh, they've done Michael Jackson. They're going to do O.J. Oh, yeah. We talked about that. Okay. So... Bardo agreed to a bench trial where a judge would render the verdict and decide sentencing uh, instead of a jury in exchange for a guarantee that they would not pursue the death penalty. At trial, Bardo's defense attorneys were like, yeah, we're not arguing that he didn't kill Schaefer, but they did plead not guilty, and I was unable to find the justification behind their not guilty plea because several articles specifically said that it was not by reason of insanity, mm -hmm. but they also, in their defense, relied heavily on the fact that he, um, a psychiatrist that they had had evaluated him, said that he had schizophrenia and that his illness led him to commit the murder. His defense claimed also that one of the catalysts for the murder was the song Exit by U2. I remember this part. Yeah. The lyrics of that song portray the mind of a serial killer, and it was inspired by Norman Mailer's 1980 novel, The Executioner's Song. At trial, they played the song, and according to the Associated Press, the song when the song was played, Bardo, who had been just like motionless, non-responsive the entire time, sprang to life, and one of them, a direct quote said, he grinned, bobbed to the music, pounded his knee like a drum, and mouthed the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Also... Part of the prosecution's case was that he was emulating Mark David Chapman, John Lennon's assassin, and they kind of, I think, what I was able to glean was that they used that to make a case that he knew what he was doing, mm -hmm. like that, uh, you know, this association between Catcher in the Rye and killing a famous person indicates that he had thought this through, and the diary entries where he had sh marked where he wanted to shoot her also kind of led credibility to that. Yeah. So... Ultimately, Bardo was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. A year later, Bardo gave an interview stating, quote, I was a fan of hers, and I may have carried it too far. Maybe. Maybe. Oh my god. So, Rebecca did have a couple of uh, film and uh, a couple of film roles that were released p posthumously called uh, out of Time, and another called The Edge of Innocence. And even though this is a, a terrible story, there are some good things that emerged out of it. Okay. The first is that as a result of Schaefer's murder and the methods through which Bardo had like stalked her and killed her, Congress passed the Driver's Pri Privacy Protection Act, which prevents the DMV from disclosing addresses. Oh, good. Okay. Good. Her death also prompted the 1990 passage of America's first anti-stalking laws. Because prior to 1990, there really weren't any. Pathetic. Yeah. By the way, I work with a lot of folks, because uh, I work on a college campus, I work with a lot of folks who do like sexual assault prevention education. And one of the things we talk about a lot is stalking and how we, we want people to be able to recognize the signs of stalking. And they are, you know... There are things like texting all the time, showing it at somebody's work, like giving them gifts, which are all things that you would see in like a healthy relationship as well. But the main difference that we like emphasize to people is that there's consent in one of those situations and not in the other. Mm -hmm. And so I if you're somebody, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. So if you're somebody out there who's like, I'm going to show up at their work when they've expressed no interest in me, or I'm going to buy them gifts, or I'm going to text them all the time. I encourage you to rethink your actions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, anyone out there who feels as though they might be being stalked by somebody, I feel like it's very easy to be like, oh, no, no, they're just unusual. 
Yeah. They're just, you know, harmless. Harmless is a word I think that gets like tossed around a lot in those situations. Yes. And this is just reminding me, I just binge listened to the, the, um, not Pamela Smart, Kristen Smart podcast I recommended oh, a few yeah. weeks ago, uh-huh. the Your Own Backyard, which yeah. I highly recommend. It was incredible. But a lot of the people they talk to, a lot of the people who knew Paul Flores throughout his life, they all mm-hmm. are saying all of these things he was doing to women. There's even yeah. an employee that gets interviewed on the podcast that said like, yeah, like he worked in the kitchen, I worked in the front of house, and I kind of felt sorry for him because he kind of seemed like hapless. And, you know, he just, you know, I felt bad for him. So I would do things for him and I would give him passes when he would like go too mm-hmm. far with me or try to, you know, ask me to go inside or ask me where I lived or ask me for a kiss. And it was just like, oh, he's so weird. He's so creepy. That's just Paul. And that was it. Yeah. But it's yeah. so easy to discount those things. It's like, that's it. And it's okay to take these things seriously. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And if you, I, I feel like so much of the conversation around things like stalking is like tips for the person who is being stalked to protect themselves, but also we need to be having conversations about like respectful boundaries <sighs> yes. with people regularly so that they understand behaviors are not acceptable and they won't stalk people. So definitely ask people questions, you know find out more about how they're engaging with this new person that they're interested in. Maybe it's not super wanted mm-hmm. and you should have a conversation with your friend about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is, it's sad, but I think it's, is kind of beautiful. So Schaefer, as I said, was engaged at the time to a man named Brad Silberling, who was um, another actor. He was, I think in graduate school for like film production at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, He created a movie inspired by his experience with Rebecca called Moonlight Mile, and it tells the story of a man's grief after his fiance is killed. I love that movie. Oh, really? You've seen it? No, that's Susan Sarandon and um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Is it? I think. I've never, I didn't know that that was about this at all. I think it is. And the the song by Elton John, Someone Save My Life Tonight, is played in the, in the, um, the trailer for it. And that's my favorite Elton John song. So that's what made me see the movie too. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's Jake Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, and Susan Sarandon. It's a and Holly Hunter. Great movie. Oh, it's yeah, great. They, so that was inspired by <sighs> his story with Rebecca. Wow. Another good thing that emerged out of it, uh, largely it seems, um, Driven by Pam Dauber, her co-host, who they they had the great relationship. Co-star. A lot of the, what did I say? Oh, co-host. co-host. <laughs> her co-star. Um, they all got together and filmed a public service announcement for the Center for Preventing Handgun Violence in her honor. And Pam Dauber also testified before Congress, urging for uh, harsher gun control laws. Good for her. As of today, Bardo is still serving out his life sentence at the state prison in Avenal, California. Um, And the only other thing that I read about him is that in 2017, he was stabbed a bunch of times while he was in prison, but he survived. So that's him. Cool. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So that's the story of Rebecca Schaefer that inspired this episode. (sighs) That one always makes me so sad. Yeah. It just is like... You didn't do anything wrong, you know? No. It's a total stranger. And it's, you know, I think for somebody who isn't, who doesn't have any fame, like they might have a a higher sense of awareness of somebody stalking them, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like a fan, like I'm sure his letters were just in all of the other letters she received that she probably didn't have time to read. So she probably didn't have any idea that this person was obsessed with her. Yeah. So terrible. I'm yeah. gonna watch Moonlight Mile again because I haven't seen it in I haven't seen it since like it came out on like when they were showing it on TV after it was out of theaters. Oh, <laughs> so like yeah. right after it was out. So I have to watch it with a whole new perspective now. Love that movie. There was one of one of the quotes uh in an interview with him, uh Brad Silberling, he talked about how it's not a literal reinterpretation of their story, but it's like he said the the heart of it mm-hmm. is our story. And that's the best so. part of the movie. It's very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Great job. Uh, thank you. Um, rating? Yeah. What do you What do you rate the episode and the you know the closeness? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna say the episode was okay. I would give it a, a C plus, maybe 
ordering on a B minus because it was one of the more I think in like just engagingly produced episodes. Mm-hmm. As far as how it dealt with the crime, you know, obviously uh, Rebecca didn't live, so uh, it's not quite the same story. Like, of course, we always talk about how like justice was served in the TV show, which doesn't uh, certainly in this case wasn't. Um, well, I mean, obviously he was convicted, but she is not alive anymore. So yeah. like the the perfection of the Law and Order episode, I think, was not not amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. reference to the real story. Um, but it wasn't like offensive or super inaccurate or like really over dramatized. So I'll give it a C. Okay. Yeah. I What about you? I think I would give the watchability. I actually give it a B plus. Oh. I like this one. I thought it was like a interesting story i fully expected halfway through the episode i fully expected a i thought i predicted the end i was like this is going to be one of those episodes where you know the the defendant loses his cool on the stand like they're going to push him too far and that's how he's going to be found guilty and i was like there's probably going to be some kind of like line he steals from her soap opera that he says in court and they'll be like oh that's it you know but they you know they didn't go down the usual route so i give it a b plus um, I, what I think is, uh, I just sort of realized one of the Law and Order plot devices that we haven't seen them implement yet is the, uh, like, person is acquitted of the crimes and then, like, commits another crime. Like, you know, they could mm. have had the story be like, he gets acquitted and then he kills her and it shows how problematic it is that he got off in the first place you know like we haven't seen them do that yet and yeah. i was kind of wondering if that's where it was gonna go they literally did that in the most recent episode of svu the most oh. recent wow yeah they've been really good this season too svu but this episode that was not it was not great but yeah they did literally just did that <laughs> i heard a rumor that criminal intent not criminal intent uh organized crime organized crime thank you might be getting canceled <gasps> oh no i really like it Although then, like, two days later, I read something about the second season being kind of different. So, hmm. who knows? From what I'm watching, it should be almost done, and it would have to be very different. I was just thinking about how we thirsted over Chris Maloney in our Patreon episode of uh, SVU. And it reminds me that on my YouTube, you know how YouTube gives you a list of, Mm -hmm. like, recommended videos? The One of them is Chris Maloney reading thirst tweets, and the (laughs) thumbnail is a tweet that says, I would cut off my arm to touch Chris Maloney's butt. It's that serious. (laughs) Can I tell you, did you watch the SVU episode for our next bonus episode? No, not yet. I watched it today. Okay. Chris Maloney is in his underwear. (gasps) All right. I'm going to need a fan and some smelling salts (laughs) to get through this episode. Oh, it's a good one. I give it a B for the crime, for closeness okay. to the crime, because I feel like it's it's very close, and while they didn't have her meet the same tragic end, which would be a little bit more realistic and maybe would have yeah. had a better effect and message, she suffers incredibly, and she is, I think, throughout the whole episode, very, very, very badly like affected. So, yes, for you know, sure. They didn't just make her be like, the earlier episodes where she's like waking up the next day and everything's great <laughs> and you know so yeah i would give b plus and then b awesome well if you would like to help us grow the very very best thing that you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform that you're using to listen to our episodes also the best way for other people to find a podcast is word of mouth so tell a friend post about us on reddit or find other ways to spread the word and our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. We absolutely love getting emails from you, so please feel free to send us a note just to say hi and how you doing. Don't forget to check out our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com. There you will find the link to our Patreon, as well as our merch store. Our Patreon has some great perks, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. And speaking of Patreon, we want to shout out our newest Patreon member, Paula Hoffman. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon and being a patron. And thanks so much for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. And we'll see you next week. Until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.